Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Driving around rural parts of the Northeast, you may come across the occasional home or vehicle displaying a Confederate battle flag. Look closer and you might find symbols of far-right groups like the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters, both classified as hate groups. I've seen it where I live in Vermont. Reporters Emily Russell and Zach Hirsch decided to dig further. They spent months investigating the reach of the far-right movement in rural upstate New York, which includes the district represented by Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. Stefanik has amplified many far-right views, such as the white supremacist Great Replacement Theory and the false claim that the 2020 election was stolen. Stefanik is frequently mentioned as a potential vice presidential candidate for Donald Trump in the 2024 election. Russell and Hirsch's investigation into the far-right movement in upstate New York is the subject of a remarkable and disturbing new podcast series from North Country Public Radio called If All Else Fails. On this Vermont Conversation, we feature the first episode of If All Else Fails, followed by a conversation with co-hosts Emily Russell and Zach Hirsch. This is episode one of If All Else Fails, broadcast by permission of North Country Public Radio. There's a little wine shop in Ballston Spa, New York, about 30 miles north of the state capital. Rainbow-colored bottles line the shop's front window. Hi, Hi are you Jess? Yeah. Hey, I'm Zach Hirsch. Okay. The shop is owned by Jess Rich. She's been here more than seven years. I'm very openly queer and very open about this store being a space where queer people should feel welcome. And um, it's not just... Last summer, Rich was working in her shop when she saw something out in the street. It was a group of at least 20 men in masks marching alongside a pickup truck. As an openly queer person in a conservative area, Rich says she always has her guard up. I've been expecting something, not them necessarily, but something to happen forever. You kind of live with this preparation, right? The sound is from a video recorded by one of those masked men. It shows the group marching past Rich's wine shop, blasting a provocative song called Try That in a Small Town. They're flying big American flags and wearing a lot of black and yellow. Printed on their face coverings and t-shirts are bold letters that read, Proud Boys. The Proud Boys are a violent, far-right extremist group. But on that Saturday afternoon in August, Jess Rich had no idea who the men were. So I didn't even think. I just, as soon as I saw them, I ran out the door. I saw the flags. I saw they were all masked, and I just... Uh, had words with them. Um, what did you say? I said, get the fuck out of my town. You are disgusting and should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> fuck you! <laughs> and then they started screaming back at me. And so, you know, I just gave them the finger. They were snapping pictures of me, taking video. And they moved along down the street. Proud Boys also marched that weekend in Saratoga Springs in the nearby town of Waterford, handing out flyers. Other far-right groups have also recruited around upstate New York in recent years, including the infamous Ku Klux Klan and lesser-known groups like Patriot Front. And whether it's posturing or propaganda or a real threat, top security officials and experts take this seriously. 
people in these far-right movements say they're serious, too. We're seeing this incredible rise in hate-filled violence and hate-filled intimidation. You take somebody who might have a kind of suspicion of government, you say to them, like, hey, come join our group that has a solution for you, right? And some of those solutions are pretty violent. The role of what I believe militia is today is to prepare for dark times. I I believe that at some point, the system will fall. We know that authoritarianism is on the rise around the world. In a lot of rural counties across the U.S., people are buying in. We've spent the last six months looking into extremist groups and militia movements here in upstate New York. And we found that they're active and recruiting, sometimes online, sometimes out in the real world. This is If All Else Fails from North Country Public Radio. I'm Zach Hirsch. And I'm Emily Russell. When we set out to look at far-right extremism in the North Country, we had a bunch of questions. First, we wanted to know the status of the far-right movement here. What do people believe in? What groups are active? What militias exist? And we wanted to just take the temperature of the region. So we started out on the surface, just driving around, looking at flags and bumper stickers. Don't tread on me. An American flag above it in Oppenheim, Fulton County. Lowville just saw a truck with the FJB, let's go Brandon stickers. Let's go Brandon and FJB, of course, mean fuck Joe Biden. Some people put their politics on display. This is NRA country, protect your rights. Driving through Johnstown. The North Country is a massive part of New York State. It spans from the Vermont border in the east all the way west to the shores of Lake Ontario and up north to the border with Canada. Over the last few decades, this part of upstate New York has gone from purple to pretty red. Most local, state, and federal officials here are Republican. Many people are deeply devoted to Donald Trump. There are signs and flags all over the region that falsely claim Trump won the 2020 election. We also saw some Confederate flags, a symbol associated with slavery and racism. See it? Two, three Confederate flags. Wow. That was in the city of Glens Falls. We have a Punisher logo. An American flag kind of imprinted on top of it. The Punisher logo looks like a skull with long teeth. It was originally a comic book character, a kind of anti-hero out for violent revenge. The symbol has since been co-opted by American soldiers and more recently by anti-government groups and white supremacists. We've seen that logo around upstate New York. We've also seen a QAnon sticker and flags with the Roman numeral three representing the three percenters, which is part of the broader anti-government militia movement. These symbols can mean different things to different people. And these ideas exist on a spectrum. Fuck Joe Biden is a lot less threatening than the ideas behind a three percenters flag. A Trump one sign doesn't have the same meaning as say a Confederate flag does. And it's hard to know what the spectrum even is, whether it's about gun rights, government overreach, race. Ideas that were once considered extreme have become more mainstream. This is happening all around the country. Many conservatives have shifted more to the right, embracing lies about the election and other conspiracy theories. People are identifying with provocative, sometimes violent movements and displaying symbols of those movements. 
and the symbols usually have one thing in common. They reflect anger or distrust towards the government or society as a whole. All right, folks. The next speaker I'm going to introduce started out like most patriots, and that was being asleep to a, the events that were going on around him. This is video from an event in 2018 posted to YouTube. The man on the stage is dressed like a soldier from the American Revolution. He is here today to help protest the tyranny that we face here in this state of New York. The event was called Freedom Fest. It happened in Norwich, New York, a few hours west of the state capital. Then a man named Nathan Mizrahi steps onto the stage. Get involved with your militias. I assure you, they will be needed if this tyranny continues. Mizrahi has a three percenters tattoo on his hand. He identifies himself as the commanding officer of the Liberty State Militia. He tells folks in the crowd they need to step up to do their part to defend their freedoms. Call your local sheriffs. I walked right into the office of mine. Said, howdy, I'm the commanding officer of Liberty State Militia and I'm in your backyard. I'm a staunch supporter of the Constitution, and I will defend that Second Amendment with my life. That's how I met Mike Carpinelli. Lewis County Sheriff Mike Carpinelli was at Freedom Fest. Carpinelli is part of a far-right movement known as the Constitutional Sheriffs, which teaches sheriffs they don't have to enforce laws they think are unconstitutional. We'll hear more about that in the next episode. Here's Carpinelli talking back in 2022 about the need to defend the country against tyranny. If all else fails, if all else fails, then we know what we have to do. Standing on the stage at Freedom Fest, Mizrahi looks Carpinelli in the eye and says he'd give the sheriff the shirt off his back. And then he does, literally. He takes off his Liberty State Militia hoodie and presents it to Carpinelli in a big gesture of loyalty. Mike Carpinelli, I pledge my militia. We will forever stand by your side for someone who stands by ours. We reached out to Mizrahi. We wanted to ask him about his militia. He told us he was no longer involved in it. Still, we were hoping he could tell us about the militia scene in general, how these groups work. When do they go from target practice and training in the woods to action? And we actually had an interview lined up. But on the day we were supposed to talk... Um, I need to, to speak to you very quickly and very um, bluntly. Okay. I'm going to have to turn down your interview. Um, I apologize for any time that I might have wasted of yours. But uh, it is definitely not something I can do. So I apologize. Um, I wish you luck on your article. And uh, that is all that I can say at this point. So best of luck. Okay. Um, oh, so that didn't work out. But we did connect with another guy involved with the militia movement named Josh Schof. Um, and are we on speakerphone? You are. You are on speakerphone until it transfers over to my truck. Okay. All right. Schof is a self-described three percenter. He's traveled the country for major anti-government and far-right events in recent years. Schof says he was at the infamous Bundy standoff back in 2014, and he led an armed military-style group at the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. He's based in Tennessee, but says he helps train militia members in New York. 
Shof says militias here are run on a military-style rank structure. These groups are, are organized to the point that they have message boards, they have meetings of their own, and those things are put out so that, you know, hey, if you want to come to a training or having training on this and this date, this is the instructor or this is the location. We don't know how many people in the North Country are part of militias. We also don't know exactly how many militias there are around the state, though according to Shof, there are more than 12. Experts say the militia landscape has changed over the last few years. Some of these groups have gone underground or disbanded. Shof told us there are a lot of misconceptions about militias. He says they want to protect everyone, no matter their gender or political party or race. He says skin color means nothing to him. But in 2019, a black congressman from Virginia suggested using the National Guard to enforce new gun laws. Shof called for that congressman to be lynched. Shof says he didn't know at the time the congressman was black, but he still stands by his statement. And I said we should take him out in the middle of the street and hang him. I said what I said because he advocated for using force against citizens. Is that not treason? This is why these groups are so alarming for law enforcement, security officials, and extremism experts. They often claim they're peaceful, say they would defend everybody. But in fact, they're driven by their own ideologies. In a way, they're inherently a vigilante movement. Joe Winnicka Leiden is an analyst with the Southern Poverty Law Center. I think that the biggest threat is that you have groups that have taken it upon themselves to decide what is legal and what's not legal. They are not really accountable to anybody else to wield potential lethal force. It's also dangerous because a lot of these groups are driven by what we call anti-government conspiracy theories. One group that's been active in upstate is the New York Watchmen. They deny they're a militia, but describe themselves as a civil defense group. They've marched in the streets dressed in tactical gear. Charles Pauline leads the New York Watchmen. He talked on a podcast in 2020 about the kind of people they recruit. We take the military guys and the former police officers, and we've got special forces veterans. We've got several black belts in our group. We've got MMA fighters. We've got championship boxers. So we're not just some ragtag bunch of guys out there that don't know what we're doing. Mm -hmm. That clip was first reported by WBFO, the public radio station in Buffalo. There have been some really brutal fights between right-wing groups like Pauline's flaunting their tactical gear and counter-protesters on the left. That kind of violence has unfolded in bigger upstate cities, like Albany and Buffalo. In the rural North Country region where our radio station is based, there really hasn't been that much of that type of violence that we know of. Incidents here seem more scattered, harder to define. But far-right groups have rallied and posted propaganda around the region. And there is data on this stuff, and lots of people researching it. The Southern Poverty Law Center tracked 53 hate and anti-government groups statewide in 2022. There's research tracking both far-right and far-left extremism in the U.S. But top security officials and experts say extremism on the right is much more violent and more likely to be deadly. Cynthia Miller-Idris is a professor at American University, where she leads the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab. We're seeing surges in targeted threats, some of which has erupted into violence, but even more making people feel just unsafe. State and federal agencies like the FBI track threats in the North Country and throughout New York. 
They also keep an eye on which groups are trying to recruit here. And in recent years, we have seen that happening. This past fall, signs for a far-right group known as Patriot Front were posted in the Adirondack communities of Keene and Upper Jay. The group also hung signs in Plattsburgh in 2018. Another group that's tried to recruit in the area is the Ku Klux Klan. Over the years, there have been reports of KKK flyers in Fulton, Montgomery, and Oneida counties. Then, in 2021, a data leak from a three percenters group showed that about a third of its registered members were from St. Lawrence County. We also heard about sovereign citizens who believe laws don't apply to them. Fulton County Sheriff Rich Giardino, who himself has been part of a far-right sheriff's group, told us about his encounters with sovereign citizens when we interviewed him last summer. I've had more issues with sovereign citizens than I have with Oath Keepers or other individuals. Sovereign citizens are resistant and say that they're not complying with the laws. You know, those lead to more high-risk confrontations with police. We'll hear more from Giardino later in our series. It's important to note that here in the North Country, a lot of this kind of activity seems to revolve around gun rights and the Second Amendment. And not everyone who identifies with a certain far-right ideology is part of an official group. So how did we get here? How did far-right anti-government groups and ideologies take root here in the region? Joe Henderson says some of it has to do with the growing economic inequality in the North Country. Henderson is a professor at Paul Smith's College in the Adirondacks. Historically, you had jobs that were kind of very masculine jobs around timbering and mining that were shaping the communities in this area and shaping people's livelihoods, shaping people's sense of who they are. And in a lot of rural areas in the United States, those kinds of careers are gone now. Good-paying middle-class jobs have evaporated in rural areas like the North Country. And Henderson says people are correctly angry about that. But who are they angry at? And so what happens often when you have social disruption, cultural disruption, economic disruption, is there's groups of people who look around for kind of some authority. And they want someone to kind of make it great again. That's happening all around the world. People are turning to authoritarian groups or leaders here in the North Country, some have been drawn to groups like the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys. This is from a propaganda video made by the Proud Boys. It shows scenes from their three rallies in Saratoga County last summer, including their march in front of Jess Rich's wine shop in Boston Spa. Some people on the street give the group the middle finger. Others look supportive, stopping to salute their American flags. Cynthia Miller Idris from American University says propaganda for a group like the Proud Boys specifically targets people who feel something's been stolen from them. Whether that's a white majority country or your Second Amendment rights might be taken away by the government supposedly or, you know, conspiracy theory about Jews or feminists taking something away or an election being stolen, all those types of propaganda are very much rooted in the idea that you're going to lose something. And we've seen some of that targeted propaganda around the region. But Miller Idris says way more recruitment is happening on the Internet. It's impossible to overstate how much toxic online spaces in particular have played a role in the spread of hateful content and in the normalization of that content. So it's not that we hadn't seen this stuff before. It's just a new form 
and it's sort of supercharged in the online environment. And she says that's led to real-world violence, like with the QAnon conspiracy theory that inspired a shooting at a pizza shop in Washington, D.C. That theory is based on the false claim the Democratic elites are running a child sex ring. It was born online and has made it out into the real world, including here in upstate New York. In the summer of 2020, there was a rally in Watertown where people held signs that said, Save the Children, which has become a QAnon hashtag. The organizer says QAnon did not inspire that event. In the spring of 2022, there was a similar gathering in Plattsburgh. Hey, things are picking up around here. The woman in this Facebook video is holding a sign that says, quote, Trump saves children, Biden abducts them. The QAnon theory has no basis in reality, and the FBI considers the movement a national security threat. Another conspiracy theory that's gained traction in recent years is the Great Replacement Theory. That's the racist notion that there's a plot to replace white voters with non-white immigrants. There's an anti-Semitic element, too, that somehow Jews are behind it all. The mass shooters in Pittsburgh in 2018, in El Paso and Christchurch in 2019, all embraced the replacement theory. Then, in the spring of 2022, it happened again in upstate New York. Witnesses say a man armed with a rifle entered that market and opened fire. A white gunman from near Binghamton, New York, murdered 10 black people at a supermarket in Buffalo. It was one of America's deadliest hate crimes in decades. Before the mass shooting, the gunman published a manifesto online about replacement theory. We're talking tonight not just about another racist mass shooting, but also the driving notion behind this and several others, and more controversially, the question of whether that notion, white replacement theory as it's called, is being tolerated or even perpetuated by some on the political right. Anderson Cooper on CNN, a few days after the Buffalo mass shooting. There's breaking news right now on one such figure, New York Congresswoman and third-ranking House Republican Elise Stefanik. She's being accused of using replacement theory language in campaign ads, something she denies. Elise Stefanik is a high-ranking Republican in Congress. Stefanik has represented New York's North Country region since 2015. In the fall of 2021, months before the Buffalo shooting, Stefanik's campaign released an ad on Facebook. It seemed to echo the great replacement theory. It claimed the Democrats were plotting a, quote, permanent election insurrection by granting amnesty to millions of illegal immigrants. Stefanik denied any embrace of replacement theory. She told a CNN reporter she condemns racism. I've never made a racist comment, and I know nationally as expanding the Republican Party among, by supporting black candidates and Hispanic candidates. Stefanik has also amplified other conspiracy theories and normalized far-right rhetoric, like repeating false claims about the 2020 election long after they were debunked. Stefanik blamed Nancy Pelosi for the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, and she described Democrats as pedo-grifters, pedo as in pedophile, in an apparent nod to the QAnon conspiracy theory, though Stefanik has denied that connection. I think what she does and what a lot of politicians do is they lean into radicalization because the base is kind of asking for it. That's Joe Henderson again from Paul Smith's college. If you have political elites that are normalizing violent rhetoric, I don't care what your party is. I worry about that. I worry about that because there's going to be some small element that is going to take that toward action. Things are happening very quickly there on the appears to be the east side of the Capitol. People are now or have moved past uh, the police and into the building. On January 6, 2021, more than 2,000 people illegally entered the U.S. Capitol. 
The goal was to overturn the presidential election. One woman came up to me and she said that this is what happens when they believe that there have been uh, what they believe are fraud in the election and told me these are people standing up for America. But you can... For years, this whole constellation of groups and ideas had been brewing. Militias, white supremacists, anti-government groups, they all converged on January 6th. The threat manifested into something a lot more visible, something real and dangerous. And we know people from around upstate New York went down to Washington, D.C. on January 6th. A town official from the Albany area organized a bus to D.C. that day. She later resigned. A mother and son from Watertown were among the mob that broke into the Capitol. They were convicted for helping steal Nancy Pelosi's laptop from her office. And a young man from Glens Falls named James Bonet served two and a half months in prison for illegally entering the Capitol on January 6th. Good to meet you. I'm nice Emily. Nice to meet you as well. Thanks for doing this. Heck yeah. Are you okay if we just sit outside? Is that right? We met James Bonet outside his home last fall. We interviewed him for more than an hour. Bonet says he went down to D.C. that day to learn the truth about the election. There's a lot of people like me that we know the election was stolen. Like, being in January 6th and being there, there's a lot of Americans there that were like, we want answers on this. Bonet says he's still convinced Donald Trump won the 2020 election, that there's a deep state working against the former president. And he's convinced the truth will come out. I think right now we're going through a process of a deep cleaning. And I think through the other side of it, it's going to be awesome. We're going to hear a lot more from Bonet later in this series. He told us that deep cleaning doesn't necessarily mean violence. But a recent poll found that nearly a quarter of Americans believe, quote, true American patriots may have to resort to violence to save the country. One thing we found over and over again in our reporting was that people who believe in extremist ideologies, they believe they are the true patriots, that their group or their ideas are what will save this country from corruption or tyranny. What security officials and experts worry about is what people will do with those beliefs. That was episode one of If All Else Fails from North Country Public Radio. We turn now to a conversation with the podcast's co-hosts, Emily Russell and Zach Hirsch. Russell is the Adirondack reporter and assistant news director for NCPR, and Hirsch is a freelance reporter and audio producer. Zach Hirsch and Emily Russell, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. Tell me when it first came on your radar that far-right extremism was a problem in rural areas and particularly in upstate New York? Well, Zach and I have been covering politics in upstate New York for years. Um, and we've both you know, seen the region shift more to the right in the last five years or so. You know, We see that with um, our Congresswoman, Elise Stefanik, who represents the North Country. But I think it really wasn't, um, I mean, we didn't start really diving into it and taking note of it um, until um, about a year and a half ago when we saw a sheriff from this region share a photo of himself um, with an award from the Oath Keepers. And this was after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, um, you know, when it was known that the Oath Keepers played a key role in that day. And that really 
sparked this whole investigation. It was um, it was very you know interesting to see this sheriff kind of embrace and promote this photo of himself. It was an award that he got back in 2016, but he was resharing it. And that photo itself got, I was like something more like a th- more than a thousand likes on Facebook and hundreds of comments, people really celebrating him for it. Um, Lewis County is very conservative. You know, most of the North country is very conservative, but really that was what sparked the investigation for us and, and made us start really looking into um, you know, more of the far right, um, you know, people that are more extreme than just, you know, your average conservatives in the region. And and we should say like far right extremism from what we found, um, particularly violent far right extremism is pretty rare in upstate New York, but we know it's happening. We know groups are here and they're recruiting. Um, but um, but yeah, so this investigation really dove into into the far right. This is pretty remarkable that a law enforcement officer would publicly associate himself with the Oath Keepers after January 6th and what we know of their role. And their leader, I believe, has been sentenced for seditious conspiracy. So tell us about Lewis County Sheriff Mike Carpinelli and the movement of constitutional sheriffs that he's part of. Well, I can talk a little bit about the the constitutional sheriffs um, movement. The the constitutional sheriffs is kind of this national movement to tell to teach sheriffs essentially that you know, hey, you don't have to follow laws you think are unconstitutional, which might actually sound you know kind of reasonable. Like, okay, yeah, we all take an oath to the constitution. At the end of the day, the constitution is the law of the land. Um, but it's kind of being weaponized in this ideological way, and and it translates to not enforcing, you know, certain gun laws that that people find unconstitutional, and we've seen that around New York State. Um, not enforcing COVID mandates. COVID became a big issue for the constitutional sheriffs movement, um, and in terms of Sheriff Carpinelli, he has had you know what looks like a fairly close connection with one of the leaders of the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association, a sheriff from Arizona, a former sheriff from Arizona named Richard Mack. Um, If you go to the website of that group, Carpinelli's photo is one of the first thing that pops up saying, you know, I stand with Sheriff Mack. There was an interview around the midterm elections uh, in 2022 where, you know, Mack kind of spent a long time with Carpinelli kind of getting, feeling out, his views and and he said some some you know some some interesting things including that he feels he is more powerful than the president of the United States um that was a question that Mac posed to Carpinelli in that interview um and that's kind of one of the core you know uh elements of of this of this movement this idea that at the end of the day that the sheriff is the most powerful figure, you know, the most powerful law enforcement official in the land, even more powerful than the president. This this evokes an era of like 18th or 19th century law enforcement, where essentially, you know, the rule of law is whatever the local sheriff decides it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it's, that's the thing that's alarming a lot of a lot of experts who have been paying pretty close attention to extremism uh, for a long time. 
you know, they, they've taken notice and, and they're really concerned about statements like that, specifically from, you know, someone like Carpinelli. Were you able to interview Mike Carpinelli? No. So we, we reached out um, many times and, and he did call us back at one point, as people will hear in the podcast, he left us a, a voicemail and, you know, it was very friendly and um, we, we were hoping to be able to interview him, but uh, we called him back and emailed him back after that. We, you know, we called staff at his, at his office to make sure he, he knew we were really hoping to interview him. And he, he, um, he ultimately posted about us on, on Facebook as um, a lot of people will hear in the, in the trailer for the show, you know, saying, you know, I will not participate in an interview that doesn't support our country. So for perspective, you interviewed another sheriff who declined to go along uh, with Mike Carpinelli and his approach to his interpretation of uh, constitutional sheriffs, and that's Fulton County Sheriff Rich Giardino. Um, talk about who he is. And as you note, he's a very conservative guy, but he wasn't willing to go that far. Yeah, that's right. Giardino is um, is a really interesting guy, and and we say this in the show, but you know he was very generous with us with his time. We interviewed him. Our initial interview was over two hours long. We went to his uh, office in Johnstown, New York, in Fulton County. Um, he does have a legal background. He went to Albany Law School um, and served as a judge um, and uh, district attorney, I believe, um, in Fulton County. And so, you know, he does have a legal background and he really he really talked about that when he was talking about, you know, using discretion to enforce certain laws. As you say, David, he did um, not, you know, he chose not to be part of the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association, that group. He said some of the people in that group are a little bit too extreme for him. He also declined to be part of the Oath Keepers militia, um, which was notable that he, you know, distanced himself from that group as well. But ultimately, you know, one of the reasons why we wanted to interview him was because he was part of another far right group in the constitutional sheriffs movement known as Protect America Now. Um, and that group has slightly softer rhetoric. It's still part of the constitutional sheriffs movement. You know, it it it's still um, encourages its members, you know, to, to, you know, use their discretion and, and follow laws they, they believe are constitutional and, you know, refuse to enforce laws that they think are not constitutional. And Giardino has done that with gun laws and with, um, health restrictions during the pandemic. Um, but, you know, he was sort of more in a gray area when it comes to, you know, how far he would take it, um, and, you know, I, I think like the power he believes he has in the county, um, Zach had a lot of interaction with him, kind of follow up conversations with him. So he might want to add something, any, any more, um, you know, context on Giardino. Well, yes. And one of the dramatic points in If All Else Fails, Zach, is your follow ups with uh, Sheriff Giardino in which you he seemed to be unaware of the extremist associations that the movement he was part of. And um, he ended up changing his mind. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, he changed his mind a little bit. He, you know, he, during the interview, as people will hear in the podcast, he kind of pushed back and was like, no, 
look, I, I know people from this group. Uh, they're not extremists. But at the same time, he kind of it gave him pause. He was like, wait a minute, this is on the radar of Southern Poverty Law Center? Like, wait, I, you know, so he kind of express he kind of went on a little bit of a, a journey and then you know yeah by the end he kind of uh i guess it's a bit of a spoiler but he he reconsidered that that connection uh to to an extent you know he's he's um i wouldn't say it's a, it, he he sort of had a full you know denouncing of this horrible group or you know nothing like that he just kind of you know it kind of gave him pause and and made him think about it a little bit deeper and and realizing you know that that you can that a person can kind of easily get recruited you know just because some, there's someone you know and trust and they say hey join our group and what, um, what do you zach what do you think got to him you know and how surprised were you that he ended up renouncing his association with this group in the course of your reporting and as a result of your reporting you know, I, I'm not sure what exactly was the tipping point. I think it was kind of just doing a little more research and seeing that, you know, some of the leaders of Protect America Now have made certain statements, um, have had close connections to other groups that he had been concerned about, like the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association when you do some reading and, and talk to some experts about, you know, kind of this whole ecosystem of groups, they say that like protect America now and constitutional sheriffs and peace officers association are like almost the same, you know, there, there aren't like tons of meaningful differences or, or there are differences in their rhetoric, but they share a lot of members. And so, you know, I'm not sure what exactly he saw, you know, on his computer screen on his end that, was really, you know, kind of tipped him over the edge. Um, I'm not sure if if part of it was just kind of all the questions from us and and realizing, you know, this was very much a concern for, you know, experts that he was hearing through us. And, you know, maybe it just, you know, it struck him as as a bad thing to be, you know, I I I'm speculating. I don't know what exactly it was, but you know, what he said ultimately was, you know, your insistent questioning caused me to dig deeper. That's what he texted. So I guess it was the line of questions. Well, let's turn to somebody where your insistent questioning did not change his mind. And that is James Bonet, who was a participant in the January 6th insurrection. Um, and he was convicted for illegally entering the Capitol. Um, Emily or Zach, not sure which one, either one of you, what radicalized James Bonet? Yeah, I mean, this he's a, a fascinating guy, and I think he does reflect, you know, what what other people who are part of far right groups or just believe in far right ideas or conspiracy theories, um, you know, that journey that they go on. So he told us, you know, years ago. So he's a guy in his early 30s from a, a city in upstate New York called Glens Falls. And he said that he um, he used to be a really big guy. You'll hear this in the podcast. And um, at some point, he lost a bunch of weight. And it was kind of that weight loss journey he that made him, you know, kind of question what he was hearing about, you know, diets and and health. And it made him doubt and question, um, you know, information that was coming from doctors um, and and hospitals. And so that was really, I mean, what he told us was 
that was really the tipping point for him. And then he started consuming, he went from a, a left-leaning Bernie bro, those are his words, to, to consuming far-right um, podcasts and, and shows online. And particularly during the pandemic, you know, we, we talked to experts who said that this was a really um, a, a time when people obviously were spending more time at home, more time on their phones and on their computers. And the internet has really helped spread these these shows and these conspiracy theories. And and James Bonet was one of those people that was going down a rabbit hole um, in the last few years. And you know, eventually, um, leading up to and after the 2020 presidential election, he, like you know, thousands of other Americans, believed in the conspiracy theory that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. He could not believe that. Um, more Americans voted for Joe Biden and that Joe Biden was the rightful winner of that election. And so kind of on a whim, he, you know, on, on, you'll hear in the show on January 5th, he, he decides to, uh, in 2021 decides to drive all the way down overnight to Washington DC because he felt so strongly that he needed to, to see Donald Trump speak. Um, and, um, yeah, and eventually he he ended up um, part of the the mob that that stormed the U.S. Capitol on January sixth. And he sounds, you know, like he became enraged uh, with what he was learning through the various conspiracy theory channels that he was listening to. There was an exchange, and and you, uh, the two of you, kind of dissect his response, and I found it really interesting. Uh, and there was a pattern to his response where he would talk about information that only he was privy to, or mm -hmm. you don't know about this. And I wonder if um, you could kind of walk through what are the patterns, because it it can be very hard to talk to a conspiracy theorist. They're constantly throwing random factoids that they believe deeply in that only they know. Um, but you sort of take apart your own conversation with him to explain what goes on in those conversations. Maybe one of you could explain how you learn to talk to a conspiracy theorist and what the pattern of their responses is. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, as one of our sources tells us in in that story, it's it's very, very common for people to kind of bombard you with information that they've spent a long time digesting. And it's like almost impossible to keep up. Uh, in, in our case for this interview, Emily was there in person. I was, I was actually at home for this one on the phone, kind of listening in. So I was able to kind of like do some research while the interview was happening and like do some live fact checking and be like, okay, what are we talking about here? But, but even, even that, you know, even with that, it was hard to keep up just because it was like one thing after another. And, um, you know, for, for a person who's deeply immersed in this stuff, you know, that's kind of their, their best, I, I guess, weapon or, or tactic. It's like, look, I've got the knowledge, I've got the information. Here it is. You can't counter this. This is, this is fact. I've looked into this. This is research. Uh, I'm knowledgeable. Um, so, you know, during the interview, it was, it was actually very, very hard to, to push back just cause it was like a, you know, just the volume of, of, of ideas that were coming at us. Uh, I, I mean, I, I just, I do want to say like, you know, James was, was very respectful. He was very, you know, open with us, generous. He wasn't rude. Um, 
but still, you know, kind of interacting in a very, you know, respectful way. He he respectfully bombarded us with with all of these things. So so you the, just the sort, sort of mention a few examples. I mean, people should hear this and the exchange and your real-time fact-checking and uh, Emily hats off to you for even, you know, for for staying in the conversation. I mean, that it, it's it's literally disorienting when somebody is bombarding you with kind of facts that you know to be untrue and you know do you constantly interrupt yourself to counter it but of course you had the benefit of somebody real-time fact-checking uh offline um yeah so maybe emily if you could talk about what are the the kind of the things that he was coming back at you with um well you know we obviously talked a lot about the election and um and he believes in various conspiracy theories about the 2020 presidential election um one of them that that um more i believe it's like more dead people voted in Pennsylvania than are buried in Gettysburg and and really and that's what you know those are kind of the words that he would use and all you have to do is is google that language and you find that you know, that's been a theory that's been debunked online, but it was a conspiracy theory that spread and and kind of went viral. Um, and um, he also believed that there was that the, the number of people that voted were um, inaccurately reported, um, which is, you know, easily debunked online as well. Um, he, he believes in a, um, a conspiracy film that was made that was called 2000 Mules, um, also about, you know, false voter fraud in the election. And actually, you know, it was very interesting because like, I, I'm not, you know, sure I've been, I cover politics part-time in upstate New York, but I'm not, you know, incredibly well-versed in like election conspiracy theories. So there were so many things that he would throw out about that or about like the economy or about, you know, vaccines or just other things that I actually can't you know, fact check him on in the moment. Cause I just don't, you know, I don't know all the specifics about all those different kinds of things. So, you know, it was helpful to have Zach on the phone, but, you know, at the same time, as Zach said, like, it's kind of impossible to really um, fact check in the moment because it, James really was throwing out a lot of very specific um, um, ideas and, and theories that, you know, that he had come to believe in. Um, so it was it was slightly disorienting. But once you once you talk to experts about this, you realize, as Zach said, like this is just a tactic. You know, they they and I've I've interviewed folks here in the North Country just on on other topics as well. And I've I've experienced that where, you know, folks um, will. Yeah, we'll just throw out very specific um, false information that I, I just can't fact check in the moment. Um, so but. As Zach said, like, I mean, James was very generous with his time. It was really fascinating to talk to him and really like he allowed us kind of inside his his mentality and his brain and his evolution. And I think it's really a valuable thing to hear, you know, to hear someone, you know, he's he's your he's your neighbor. He's the guy at the five guys. He's he's like so many Americans around the country that have gone down this rabbit hole um, and, and I think it's incredibly important for people to realize, you know, that these people are human and that they're your neighbors and, you know, they're open. Some of them are open to conversations like James was. You had a conversation with New York's top security official, Jackie Bray, and you discussed with her, how do you prevent extremism? How do you prevent people 
from going down these rabbit holes? And what do you do when you see it happening to someone you know? What did she say? That's really the the big question, isn't it? That, you know, I think so many of us are, are thinking about right now. According to Jackie, you know, um, and I think this is true, you know, just speaking up and saying like, hey, I, you know, I don't, I don't believe that, you know, that's not true. That doesn't sit right with me, you know, in, in the family setting, especially, or with coworkers or with friends, you know, just kind of not letting things stand, um, you know, uh, in terms of like bigger ways to intervene in extremism, there are a lot of, you know, um, experts and, and researchers thinking about that. Um, you know, we don't get super deep into the intervention side in our reporting, but uh, I, I do think um, there, there's a lot of prevention that's happening. You know, how, how do you prevent someone from going down the rabbit hole in the first place? Because if you try to catch them on the other side, you know, after they've already gone down those rabbit holes, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to sort of deprogram somebody. You also ask the question, what's different about extremism in rural New York? And I'll expand that to just say the rural Northeast um, versus extremism elsewhere. What did you um, conclude about that? Well, we found that um, in, in our region, in upstate New York, that um, guns play a big role in that movement, gun rights um, and the Second Amendment in particular, you know, that's really that's really riled people up. It's um, inspired them to organize and join groups. And it's been the focus of some of these anti-government groups, some of these militias um, and New York in particular. And we say this in the podcast um, in back in 2013 under Governor Andrew Cuomo passed the, the SAFE Act, which was in response to the the Sandy Hook shooting in Connecticut. Um, and that was at the time, one of the most restrictive um, gun control measures in the country. And so that, I mean, we saw that, you know, we saw that with, with Sheriff Mike Carpinelli from Lewis County, that was kind of what, what kind of pushed him into the spotlight and other sheriffs as well came out and said that they were not going to enforce um, that safe act. And, um, and still to this day, you'll see signs around, upstate New York that say, you know, anti-SAFE Act. Um, and so in our research, we did find that that was really kind of the main motivating factor behind many of these people and many of these groups, um, you know, more so than other kind of far-right ideologies. Uh, that was what we, we found in upstate New York. What, um, has there been any repercussions for the two of you as reporters for delving into this stuff. We know that um, a lot of folks in the far right extremism world don't take kindly to the media. I mean, um, I, I would just say from not in this project, but from uh, past previous projects, kind of looking into some of this world, uh, I, I, I've received a death threat and some harassment online. Um, and it's like, unfortunately, a little bit of a rite of passage, you know, in, in covering this stuff. Um, I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, knock on wood so far, so good. Um, I, I hesitate to say that cause I don't want to jinx it, but, um, 
yeah, I mean, I, I do think there are a lot of people who are, um, you know, angry out there with, with reporters like us. Yeah. And I, we did, you know, we did take precautions, um, just, you know, as journalists in general, I, I'm, I'm pretty guarded about my safety and, and, you know, my, what's out there about my public life. Um, but, um, I guess luckily and happily I've, I have not received so far any, like, any threatening messages from people. Um, I actually, that made me think about, um, interestingly enough, our, our story on Lewis County Sheriff, Mike Carbonelli, we actually, not only were we not able to talk to him, but we, we did struggle to talk to some sources there, particularly people he works with, you know, folks in the legislature because they themselves, um, and, and other, just other, just people in the public in Lewis County were scared of the repercussions of speaking out publicly, um, being critical of Mike Carpinelli. And that, 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 that I feel like told us kind of a significant amount about, you know, um, I don't know, just, you know, just the impact that, that somebody like that can potentially have on people, um, who don't like what he's doing in his County. The culture of fear. Yeah. Um, finally, what do you want people to take away from if all else fails? And, and what's your biggest takeaway, each of you? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, I think um, one thing we say towards the end, we, we talk a little bit about in our sort of debrief conversation with our editor, we talk about the idea of overt racism versus a, a you know a more systemic complex web of you know of of history and and these different groups that have a lot of historical overlap i i think that's a big takeaway for me it's like you know our series is kind of a quick snapshot of a few things um you know we you know but but really like there there's just a lot of interconnectedness of of these different movements and you know even if it's not even if, you know, overt, outspoken, you know, white supremacist ideology, even if that's not the sort of core thing that people are, you know, saying out loud, um, I, I think it's important to remember that a lot of the groups overlap, you know, when you're talking about anti-immigrant groups, um, pro-Second Amendment militias, anti-government militias, um, you know, there, there's kind of a vision of the country that they talk about. They they refer to God a lot, and they're kind of referring to this idea of the United States and this idea of who we the people are that comes back to, you know, the idea that it's for, you know, for white people, for, for Christian people. And um, I, I think that's just an important thing to, to emphasize. And you know, to basically to, to be aware that that that's kind of how people are talking about this. And I think one of the things that, that one of my big takeaways from the show, you know, particularly after interviewing James Bonet and talking to other folks in this movement, um, as I said, at the top of our interview, like violence from far right groups um, and people who believe in those ideas is pretty rare in upstate New York. Um, but, you know, as we saw on January 6th, it only took, you know, a couple thousand people to suspend our democratic process for hours. And, and, 
you know, force an evacuation from the Capitol and, and members of Congress hiding in their offices and wearing gas masks. So a, a small number of people can have a massive impact on this country. Um, you know, we see that with with racist mass shootings as well. Um, so I think that for me, that's been a big takeaway is realizing that, you know, even if folks who have gone down these rabbit holes may be, you know, a minority in this country, like if you if you get enough of them riled up, they can do a tremendous amount of damage to our democracy in the U.S. Well, Emily Russell and Zach Hirsch, I want to thank you both for joining us on the Vermont Conversation and for a remarkable podcast, If All Else Fails, from North Country Public Radio. Thanks, Thanks so much for having us, David.